and welcome to Code and Crack. This is the Polyploid Mutant Edition. This is your weekly digest from the team here at Terminus DB, and where the crack is always Moorish. We break up the technology chat into three segments, and we talk about something that we're excited about internally. Um, we talk about some technology in the world, and we talk about something topical. Um, so this week we have uh, Prologue Rust, um, we have the FFI, we have Distributed Transactions, and we have Does Being a Polyploid Mutant Have Its Advantages? I'm Luke Feeney, it is Friday, and this week we have a smaller crew than usual. We're joined by the Benevolent Dictator for Life, the Prologue Priest, Gavin. Hello. We have the Czar of Testing, the uh, Minor Duke of DevOps, Sean. Hello. Um, So... um, it's uh, it's it's great to start with the topic like Prologue Rust FFI because I have no idea what it is. So, Gavin, what what are we looking at first of, in terms <laughs> oh, of the code? Luke, first, what is an FFI loop? Do you know that? No, Jesus, no. Okay, I think it's like a future <laughs> financial instrument. <laughs> yeah, so, sometimes it's called an FLI um, for a foreign language interface, uh, but ah. sometimes people say foreign function interface. And I think actually, in, if you look in in the Swipple RS uh, package, so we, we have this package Swipple RS, and Matthias used FLI, I think, because it's probably more accurate in, in Prolog when you're actually uh, calling predicates that it should be a foreign language interface rather than foreign function interface. So, so what are not actually functions. So it's the interface that's between two languages so they can chat to each other. That's it, yeah. So usually to a lower level language and a higher level language, generally speaking, but it could be something that's that's comparable. And I'm not surprised, and I'm not being overly optimistic to say that like nobody has ever written a Prolog Rust one before. Given yeah, Prolog's so, kind of weird, and Rust is kind of new. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I, this is probably the only uh, one out there. Um, and Rust is somewhat of an odd language, and Prolog is something of an odd language. So uh, interfacing two really odd languages together is, <laughs> is an interesting challenge. And uh, yeah, this is, you know, it's a shame we don't have Matthias here today, because actually he'd be the person to speak about it, because he, he wrote this entirely himself, um, which is quite impressive. Wow. And so what do people usually use for FFIs? Do they use like a library they take off the shelf or um, do they roll their own? So like with high level languages, oftentimes you'll have um, an FFI usually, well, oftentimes to C because C is sort of the the go-to systems language. So, uh, you know, usually you'll have one that bridges across that. But somebody somebody else just wrote and you just use? Yeah, so like oh, the, a lot of the writer it's built into the runtime of the language, whatever it may be. Ah, that's right. Yeah. So usually, like if you have a high level language like Lisp, uh, it'll come with a low level interface to so that you can load C libraries and talk to them. Uh, sometimes there's like bridges across to Java, 
and like in the past, you know, in 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 uh, in the ancient times in Vaxland, they had like FFIs that were like multi-language marshalling. Um, uh, so like a foreign. like a meeting place of many languages. Exactly. Yeah. So is that because uh, the Vax uh, uh, assembly is so high level that everything was able to talk through the Vax assembly? Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I like sometimes I look at Vax and you know it, it kind of got a bad reputation in in some ways, but like a lot of the things were very um, advanced about it. Um, I don't know. So you've used it somewhat yourself, have you, Sean? Vax. Uh, yeah. That was my first uh, remote access servers to Vax, so I can't. I didn't know any. It was probably what. Uh, nine, ten years old, so I didn't know any technological things, but I learned the command line, uh, the command line. Yeah, they were pretty pretty nifty machines. It was my first connect, yeah, it's my first sort of uh, internet experience was on a Vax. I'm anti-Vax. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Hi. <laughs> That's the Unix tradition to be anti-vax. <laughs> there you go. I knew it was those guys. <laughs> They're the ones spreading the COVID. Well, actually, the Unix are anti-sex. That's the... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Do you know that uh, that um, Unix? It, it was actually a, a double entendre. Um, so there was this operating system previous called Multix, and the joke was that Unix was one of whatever Multics was many of, or it was Multics with its balls cut off. So that's the, <laughs> that was the joke. God, so, these are great jokes. Early computer programming jokes are the best <laughs> one. Yeah, of course. <laughs> classy, classy yeah, jokes. Classy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, then, then Linux is just somebody just names it after themselves. <laughs> that's pretty interesting too. Yeah, it certainly is, isn't it? Um, so uh, what are we looking at here, Gavin? So yeah, so uh, so I guess you know um, this is a really beautiful library, and basically, um, in in prologue land, you have all these terms, and then you have unification, um, and you have backtracking, and so those are the sort of uh, things that go on in prologue. It's relatively simple programming language model. Uh, that's actually quite flexible, despite being incredibly simple. And, uh, but there's a, a few sort of wrinkles, and all of these about modules, predicates, stuff like that are all contained in, in this um, foreign language interface. And one of the major factors is that you want, to, you want to be able to make things unifiable. And so unification in, in Prolog, uh, for those who don't know, is the ability... To, to bind something to a variable or to have like a skeleton. So you can you can say things like x is equal to f, uh, y, and x is unknown and y is unknown. And then you could later say what y is. Mm. Um, and then you end up with like uh, x is equal to f of 1. So you can kind of leave st structures partial. Um, and that, that ability to have partial structures is very unusual uh, and has a lot of impacts. It's sort of like a safe pointer. Uh, it's like having pointers, except they're completely safe. 
So you can actually do things with this that are almost impossible in functional programming languages to do in the same um, computational complexity, which is, is quite unusual and cool. Uh, but you also, you can, you can like later say, oh, I have this other Z and I want to see if it's um, unifiable with, y, uh, with X. Um, and then you could say that uh, Z is also equal to like, I don't know, F, F of one. Um, and this all is true. And so there's like, you can, you can check to see if things are equal to each other in a very uh, direct, it, it's the, in the technical mathematical sense, it's the free algebra over these functor symbols. Cool. Uh, so <laughs> I like being, I, I only like to be bound to one skeleton though. You don't, you don't like lots of them at once. Well, I like my own. I like being bound yeah. to my own, but other people's skeletons, I'm not so keen on. Well, in in unification land, it's only ever uh, you if it's the same, you know. So that's good. <laughs> the I identity is is worked out through unification. Nice. So so, so in order so to do yeah, just a quick question. So we, yeah. we you know our kind of general idea. Yeah, it seems to me now, I I, feel, I could be wrong about this, but our general idea is that we're going to push more and more of the prologue code down into Rust because it's faster and we get better performance. And we've seen, I think, recently some of that uh, coming through into the into the releases. And so does the does the bridge then become less and less relevant? So that's a very good question. So I like I, I think the strategy um, it's close to what you said, but not not exactly. So the the idea is um, that you want to write if you're writing in in prologue, you can write much more quickly than you can in Rust. Like I'm I'm not sure exactly what the ratio of speed difference is, but um, adding new features to uh, prologue is much less cumbersome. Probably there's probably a factor of between three and 10 in terms of how long it takes to do things in Rust. So what you want to do is put all of the tight loops, all of the heavy lifting in Rust when you can, and you sort of press things down as, as you find that you need to. And if you can do that, then you can sort of move the, move the bar and you can get the performance up very high. And there's some parts of like a lot of the prologue is just doing orchestration. So it's uh, sort of glue code. It's not computationally complex. Uh, it shouldn't have uh, enormous costs. And so it doesn't matter all that much if something's written in prologue. Um, but, you know, you can imagine as you uh, optimize away the heavy parts, then the other parts become relatively more heavy. And then you start looking at whether or not you should... Uh, turn them into Rust. Now, the part that I think will not go into Rust is the query engine. Mm. And the reason is that uh, Prolog is a very effective query language. Um, so that's really what it excels at. And so compiling to Prolog is compiling to a virtual machine. And compiling to the Prolog virtual machine is a better virtual machine for searching graphs than most uh, anything that you would develop yourself, it would be very hard to make something with which with the same level of performance, uh, even writing it directly in Rust. So uh, I think that part won't change. You can imagine almost all the rest of the orchestration eventually, if things, you know, settle down or simmer down, getting moved in there. 
Okay, so again, I'm going to ask another dumb question because I don't really understand uh, this stuff. So, why on earth then would you bother writing a prologue in Java or in Rust or in anything? Like, why would you then take a language and rewrite it in a different language? Well, you have to write it in some language in the first place. So, um, uh, performance you know, like, C. You know, like people are writing like like Square Prologue, that one, for example, that that uh, Canadian chap is 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 developing. Like, what's that right. all about? Okay, well, I mean, th- there's there are um, there are fundamental advantages to Rust over C, and the main one is that uh, memory management in Rust gives you greater, um, you know, the, <laughs> you have guarantees about more things. And it's very easy to shoot yourself in the foot with C, and it's not so easy to not shoot yourself in the foot with C. And that's the real problem, is if it was not so hard to make safe, uh, Rust wouldn't really exist, but it's actually very hard to make it safe. So um, now in in Rust, you know, we have words like unsafe here. Uh, This here has to be unsafe because I'm calling a C um, function here. So it it has to be unsafe. But... Most of the things you do have a lot of constraints around them that ensure that you don't screw things up. And even when you're calling C from uh, from Rust, you can end up with greater constraints than you would have from the C. So here, in in uh, Matthias's um, foreign language interface, we declare uh, a predicate with these sort of uh, these macros here. We say it's a semi-deterministic. And then we have this function body, and it takes a context. And the context, whenever you have to create a new term in a context, um, you want to make sure that that context is still available to you, that its lifetime has not uh, gone away, that you don't create a term in some kind of context that, that doesn't exist anymore. And that's you have to just do that by careful programming in the C, but in the in the Rust version, it actually makes sure the type system will actually make sure that its lifetime is there. So that's that's pretty huge advantage. Okay. And it, like yeah. So in in security terms, like that's also a huge issue. Uh, stack overflows, buffer overruns, these sorts of things are much more like by default. It, by default, you can't do them in Rust, and if you do them, you have to you have to jump through some unsafe hoops intentionally. Okay. So that just changes the security profile of Rust over C tremendously. Okay. And if you, okay, if so you we basically a, would want somebody to re-implement Sweet Prolog in Rust. That would be ideal. That would be great. Or if there's anybody out there who's got a few free afternoons <laughs> and they want to get yeah. to the same level of robustness that Sweet Prolog has right today, which is, wow. which is implemented in C, is it? That's right. That's right. Okay. So yeah, so you you would inherit all the advantages of safety, um, and we we inherit all of the possibilities of some kind of seg fault happening because we're in in uh, SWE prolog using C. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And we have a couple of comments here uh, from our pal. Something else entirely. Uh, having a language that nests into these environments and provides a better developer experience is a huge incentive to bring your own wheel. What do you think to about bring that? You, to bring your own wheel. Yeah. I'm not sure I, I follow. I mean, I like... Uh, I mean, it's... It, First of all, obviously, does, he started by insulting the Java ecosystem and then the JavaScript <laughs> even more. 
<laughs> he means he means by as in reinventing it. I see. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of possibilities yeah, it's for. Like, it's also uh, fun for a lot of people to implement the language uh, in their own way with their different uh, you know, base language if you want to. So happens a lot. People want to do it because they like to have control over it and they enjoy it. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, I I, uh, I was working fairly closely with a scheme written in Java, it, to, a scheme that compiled to the JVM, um, and the one of the advantages is if you're working in a Java environment, uh, you can interface with this other language very easily, and you can you know use all of the libraries that exist there very easily because you're written in it. So, so that could eventually, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, there's so, a lot of examples of those uh, other languages written for the JVM, like Groovy. It's like a Python yeah. language, which you That's right. And uh, you always see Paul Graham every now and again, Paul Graham of Y Combinator. He comes out with a new lisp. He's always lashing out new lisps. <laughs> That's true. Uh, which I assume he's implementing in C, is he? I can't remember what he was implementing. I think it is, but I, I can't recall exactly. you got to pretty much assume that's it because it wouldn't make sense um, much uh, otherwise. Maybe he's doing a Rust. Well. Yeah, or you could do it in in uh, Lisp. Oh yeah, a common Lisp. <laughs> yeah, there you so, go. Yeah, I mean the the most co the most popular open source common Lisp is written in common Lisp. Oh, is it? Yeah. Nice. It's a self self hosting compiler. Nice. Pretty um, cool. That is pretty Compiles cool. Compiles to fast native code too. So. Cool. Maybe we should uh, re-implement in uh, Lisp. That's right. Or implement the prologue and prologue nice <laughs> that's the way to do it self-hosted prologue would be rad as something else entirely says <laughs> it would be pretty cool anybody out there again there's another project for anybody out there in prologue land <laughs> we're interested in both the re-implementation of three prologue in rust and self-hosted <laughs> prologue if you could do both of those then we'd be we'd be interested in maybe using it as open source and uh, you know Benefiting from all your labor. I'm, I'm sure it must have, must be done. Prologue implementing Prologue. I have implemented a Prologue supercompiler in Prologue. So, and as a supercompiler, you have to implement a, an evaluator as well. Not so, so supercompiler, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So our second topic today is distributed transactions. Oh my goodness! What a heavy day! Like what from a heavy day. To... Exactly for a, for a bright Friday. This is a heavy one. So tell me, what do I need to know about distributed transactions? Oh Jesus! That, there's so much to you, know. Is that where you hand out uh, money to everybody? That is it. <laughs> That's right. That's that it. I think it's. I think they call it helicopter money. Helicopter money. Just come money. over with a helicopter and just drop the money down. That's right. Good for the economy. <laughs> it is good for the economy, exactly. Until the inflation goes through the roof, and then yeah, then you, <laughs> then you got to stop with the helicopters. <laughs> you got to phase back. So, are we talking about helicopter money, or are we talking about something else? Are we talking about the the network of ATMs? Yeah, no, it's the yeah. Jesus, I mean, it's such a huge subject. I probably what it was meant when it was put in as a topic was something about terminus uh, DB, but. Maybe it's more general than that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we were talking about this, actually, Matthias and my, myself and, and Robin were talking about the CAP theorem. 
uh, and trying yeah. to <laughs> recall exactly um, how it works. But the cap theorem is that essentially you can you can have consistency, availability, or partition tolerance, and you can't you can have two of the three, but not all three, and you just have to give up on some of them. And then we were talking about like what what do people give up on, and the answer is pretty surprising in a lot of instances. So, you know, the the normal thing. So, what does this mean, right? Okay, so if you have a bank account, uh, and I say, you know, we have this replicated bank account. Different people have copies of it, um, and we we are doing distributed transactions over this thing. You don't want my bank account to go under. Um, like this could go negative and me be able to buy things in negative bank account so then you have this consistency problem and then if the if the network breaks down and and you partition uh then you know uh you're gonna have to wait until the network comes back together in order to ensure that i never go below or the other half of the network could say oh actually i'm going to subtract something from his bank account it's below or it's it's still above zero now and then the other side does the same thing, and then when you combine the two transactions, I'm actually below uh, zero in, in my transactions. So you might think, you know, okay, well, then we're going to have to give up on um, the availability, right? So we, we're going to have to say, okay, sometimes you just can't do it um, because we want to keep the consistency uh, and we want to keep the partition tolerance. But actually, I think... You know, <laughs> I, in some cases, I've seen my bank account actually go below on on a, a debit account that I didn't have an overdrawn. So I think they probably just give up on the on the partition tolerance. Do you know the answer to that, actually, either of you? No, I saw no. that Apache Cassandra though was nope. going acid. Are and it's famously distributed. So I, you know, I just saw it in passing as this being the big news that's about to come out from Cassandra. From whatever the company is that um, that uh, is the kind of the host of Cassandra Confluent, is it? Um, and they were saying that it's going to go acid. So I I don't know. Maybe acid doesn't acid isn't what it used to be. Wow, that's interesting. Because the whole point with them was that you know they gave up on consistency and you could use them for big things because um, you know you because didn't care so much. That. You know that's right. Yeah, if you want to drop the if you want to drop the consistency, you can do availability and partition tolerance, and that's that's a that's a pretty good thing, you know. Oh yeah, I mean, I think there's I lots like of, a lot of use cases. Yeah. In between is the eventual consistency. That's right. So you can you can also have that they eventually come to some kind of convergence. Exactly, and that's usually fine, and we see that in all of our daily application use. I mean, that's all the time that you see that messages aren't arriving. They arrive later, things happen in strange sequences. Um, you know, when you're using big internet scale applications like LinkedIn or something like that. Facebook. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. loads of that. You might you might give something a like and then it appears 10 minutes later. That's right. Um, so somebody... That's so, good enough for a lot of things, yeah. Yeah, so there's something else entirely says that we can have all three. That in Can in, we? Yeah, in special cases, being logical, mono monotonicity yeah and yeah. he says crdts That's are a great example of this subset yeah no he's dead right uh, so there are things in which you have some monotonicity uh and that does allow you to do all three he's right so i mean it's kind of an interesting example but if you have a counter like the likes on a facebook thing um it it, it does have partition tolerance because it doesn't matter 
when the like shows up, right? It just it matters that eventually it will show up. So if you don't care, um, then you know that you know exactly the number now. Then we can wait, and then we can merge the transactions later. And so I think it's, you know there's a huge true. number of cases where that's that's uh, totally acceptable. Yeah, I think a lot of times they don't get uh, implemented very carefully, and like if you do it naively, then you somebody clicks a like, and then they don't see anything, so they click again. They don't handle that kind of uh, you know item potency. Uh, in, in, yeah, item potency, or or dealing with the possible effects of interactivity. You reload the page, then you click again; it still isn't there. So uh, there's and, and especially with interactive stuff like that, uh, it has to be done carefully. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think, you know, um, these CRDT libraries are starting to gain popularity because they can assist you in doing it correctly and using tricks like added potency, monotonicity of the of the um, the outcome helps to get these sorts of things. So, like, Terminus also wants to do some of these sorts of things where you can essentially um you can resolve conflicts later uh if if in fact you don't mind resolving them so in a lot of cases if you're not like doing a transaction where um you're actually paying money to somebody and they're giving you something uh and you can't undo it later but you're trying to resolve conflicts on documents or something like that where it's it's okay if the resolution happens at some later stage by maybe a human or a machine intervention, then we can also uh, we can also use that as as a strategy where you allow conflicts to exist. So that's uh, another example. Okay, so you just represent both of the conflicts, both sides of it. Yeah, you see, you know, so okay, so if I have node one, right, and then I have node two, and and we do some update to. Uh, two separate objects, so two separate documents. So we have document A is updated, and in node two, document B is updated. Uh, uh, we can then, you know, sync across, uh, and there's no problem because these things are actually unrelated. So yeah, um, you know, then then there's no problem. We can we can just uh, uh, node A can send <laughs> document A's update to node two, and document and node two can send document B's update to node one, and we get a new wonderful universe where they they both have the uh, the same information. And I I need a better drawing application. <laughs> um, yeah. So then, uh, if we then take the experience where we're actually going to have node one um, and node two update document A, yeah, uh, it's possible that the parts of document A that are updated are unrelated to the yeah. parts of document A and node 2, in which case you can also do uh, the merge afterwards with no conflict. And so then, you know, that there's no problem there again. Uh, but it could be that they both, like, say, I, I update the, the title, right? Uh, and a title is almost like... A title is almost atomic, right? It's not something that you probably want to take a bit of node one's idea of the title and a bit of node two's idea of the title it's something that it probably wants to be one or the other and so then you can just resolve you know resolve it through some kind of resolution process uh, in this case almost certainly a human would have to look at it and see which one was going to be the correct one 
in the final state. Or you could have some um, sort of hierarchy or something, no? You, you could, could say this you could guy, have this a, user always wins or whatever like yeah, that. That's right. You can have, you know, node one always wins is a, is a possibility. You can also have, you know, last timestamp always wins is a possibility. So that's... That's a CRDT know. thing, though. They do that with CRDTs or with OTs, they, do they? They do, yeah. In both those cases, it's a cheap uh, kind of kludgy yeah. way of coming up with the monotonicity. It's monotonicity of time. <laughs> it's the last guy there wins. Yeah. Um, especially like often they get that wrong as well that's true yeah, the transactions kind of are tricky. coming in weird ways when you're using some of those um collaboration applications yes a lot of them just do the the wrong kind of thing for what you think it should do exactly um, and it's, it's it may a very be a jarring CRDT, feeling it's not, yeah it's a crdt but it's not the one you want yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. um and so you know, wh why do we care about distributed transactions just at the base level? Like, you know, it, it, like, wh why is this important? Is it just yes. internet scale? I mean, for most people, they just shouldn't care. Is, is that what I'm thinking? Well, I mean, yeah, well, there's a lot of a lot of reasons why we care. So one, uh, it's because, you know, the speed of light is a constant. Uh, you can't go, you can't break it. So it means that there's always a delay between what happens to me now here uh, on my computer or on my portion of, you know, Frankfurt's Google server and what happens, you know, in, in Tokyo. Um, so those things have to be communicated. Uh, and like when we're both editing a document on Google Docs, my edits happen and then you don't get them until later. And that's, that's just a fact of life. Like we can't wait around for my key press to get all the way to you and then you say oh yeah i've seen key press and you send me back a message that kind of consistency we can would be we ridiculous. could see that no well we could do that but it would be really it would look it would feel terrible yeah you'd feel you'd feel the slow. latency yeah it would be really terrible so yeah so that's that's not the done thing because it, it would not be uh fun so we have a comment here again. Makes you think that time series databases can't go inconsistent. Their leader node is the real world and all database instances are followers of that. The error case where reality goes down can be ignored. I mean... Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I'm not sure about that last one. I mean, reality could go down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I, I start thinking about quantum mechanics and trying to get their transactions to work out properly is a little bit uh, interesting. Yeah, how, how like, uh, in quantum computing, how does that work? Yeah, well, I, I mean, what's I, the idea I can't say I, What's the idea of quantum computing's uh, approach? To, um, to that sort of transactions, yeah. Well... I mean, okay, I studied this a lot, and I, I can honestly say I haven't a clue. Uh, <laughs> I, spent, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I don't know. It depends on the interpretation you take, and it depends on what you think is going on. Uh, and, like, the maths are doable, right? But the meaning is sort of confusing. And even even though I can understand the maths that, like, give you a certain outcome for probabilities that... Where, where I can see how it's faster, I don't really understand what's going on, or precisely why it's faster is very vague to me. It has something to do with supercorrelation, but <laughs> beyond that, I'm not sure. 
Just as something else entirely says, you just materialize all possible universes and destroy the ones where your database is inconsistent. Well, that's that is an interpretation. However, um, you don't get to somehow use all of that parallelism, so it's somehow constrained. So you get a, only a special uh, value from these multiple parallel universes. That's less than you would get if they really were all utilizable. And that's the part that's confusing to me. I mean, if it was just straightforward parallelism in lots of multiple universes, so our answer is I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's the real uh, I don't know. I mean I think it's kind of like what he said. I think that there. But I think there's some kind of transactionality between them, or they res there's some resolution procedure or something like that. Maybe they go backwards in time or something. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Wowzers. Anyway, I, I saw that the UK government had uh, purchased its first quantum computer. Um, really? The Department of Defense had, yeah, uh, during the week. Uh -huh. So uh, it seemed the, the Ministry of Defense is going to work with some company, but it's probably just, you know, people selling people shiny rocks for a billion dollars. I mean, wow, whether it actually incredible. does anything, but it's interesting that it's got to that level of um, people investing in actually buying quantum computers uh, into the Ministry of Defense. Well, it makes sense if you're trying to crack, uh, you know, if you're trying to crack cryptography, because I think that's one of the first things that's going to fall over as a result of quantum. It's going to be big military uh, and, you know, security state trying to crack uh, enemy cryptography mm, interesting well if you want to crack code this is the right podcast to be on <laughs> <laughs> there you go there you go quantum prologue could also be really neat oh yeah explore the that's entire good. search space at once says oh, something else entirely that would be cool there you go that another a third prologue project to add it. to our list <laughs> we have many yeah. for you prologuers out there yeah i want to see that one <laughs> So, our third topic of the day. Does being a polyploid mutant have its advantages? Yeah, this what? is just a ridiculous day, man. <laughs> <laughs> what is a polyploid mutant? Uh, so, polyploidy is when you, when you have more than one set of uh, the genetic material. More than is necessary, really, for reproduction. Um, so, yeah, more than one pair. So, so, what, um, so what, what does that mean in, a, in, in my, you know, regular frame of reference? That's a very good question. It, so it means if uh, you have uh, three um, sets of chromosomes in your triploid, you would not, you might be an XYY or an XYX, XXY. Okay. Did that go too far? <laughs> you, <laughs> might have, you might have multiple uh, yeah. of the uh, chromosomes for the uh, sex. Yeah, that's right. Nice. So that does happen. It does happen to humans as mm -hmm. well. And oh. polyploidy happens in, in nature all over the place. Goldfish, apparently. Goldfish, salmon. Salmon. Almost all the, I think all the salmon I like trout, all of them, I think they're all po polyploids. Are they? Um, and what advantages yeah. does it confer to them? 
Well, apparently, like they're still doing lots of research into this, but there are a number of possible things. Like they think that it seems to uh, help in against some kinds of diseases. It also allows you can you can uh, uh, reproduce asexually, okay? Like sometimes because you can use your own uh, extra sets of genes to cross pollinate with yourself, so that can be handy. <laughs> well, it could be quite weird too. No, <laughs> it could be weird. It's definitely going to be some mutants in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it, it's an interesting one. So what are so, so what are the disadvantages to being a polyploid mutant? That's a good question. Um, I think there's there's uh, deleterious effects from. Uh, the asexual reproduction can sometimes be a problem, <laughs> uh, and there's epi- like they, the there's a claim that there's epigenetic instability, and the the problem is that so epigenetics that's another thing, right? It's kind of an interesting one um, uh, because it's the idea that we have a sort of semi Lamarckian uh, genetics going on that layers on top of our Darwinian ev- mm. evolution. Uh, so we can respond to environmental impacts, and not only do we respond to them and change our gene expression, but we can confer them to our children. So that's, you know, that basically breaks um, dogmatic uh, Darwinism. Mm. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe most, it was... Most the- uh, epigenetic... Uh, doesn't affect the the germline, which is the one you pass on to. That's right. Children. That's true. But is if you think of twins, um, they're born exact same genome. As they grow up, they often Diverge. at least have physical differences that you notice. That's one uh, visual sign of epigenetics. That's right. Interesting. Interesting. And so uh, being a polyploid human typically means you don't survive to birth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but it does happen. Um, and what's the mechanism for that happening? Um, I guess it's in cell division. It's cell division, in, okay. In, yeah. Interesting. So. Interesting. So uh, it, it seems like being that in a human doesn't have many advantages. Yeah, probably not a, a load of advantages for humans. There seem to be a lot of fish doing it, so maybe it's better for the fish. And the fish, water. the fish are doing it independently of us messing up their environments. It's not like yeah. a three-eyed fish sort of scenario. No, no. They just this is just the way they roll. The goldfish. Yeah, and apparently there's like quite a lot of flip flopping that goes on. Like so, they've looked at uh, there's some kind of periodicities or in the polyploidy so if you go back i can't like i think trout and salmon didn't become polyploids until not too long ago uh i have to look it up again but i think it was like you know maybe it was 40 million years ago or something like that that we end up with these polyploids samadai okay so at some point in evolution those guys flipped from being non-polyploid into being polyploid yeah and i and i guess they're they're looking through the records now and seeing things going back and forth over time so 
Okay. So cool. I'm not sure. So everything is more complicated than the more we look at it. It exactly. seems. That's definitely true. That is definitely true, and that is uh, that could be the summary of today's episode of Code and Crack. Everything is more complicated <laughs> once you start looking into it. Distributed transactions, uh, mutants, uh, code bridges, all sorts of things. <laughs> the world's just a complicated place. I think for on on that note, we will leave uh, another episode of Code and Crack right there. Uh, it was a smaller gang today. I'm sure some of the other uh, familiar characters will be back next week to entertain and enlighten. Um, but have a fantastic week. We will be here again uh, next Friday and the Friday after that. So uh, looking forward to it. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. See ya.